Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'd like to invite you to open your Bible and join me for this time in the Word. And if you'd like uh, additional resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org. That's my website. And if you have comments or questions about the Christian life and faith in general, or about things you hear on this program, send me a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So with the last program, we finished up a series where we were considering the false teaching of amillennialism and just how damaging that is to Christians uh, to understand the Bible according to that system uh, and specifically biblical prophecy. But it seemed like because we'd spent some time getting into a pretty negative topic, uh, I just felt it would be good to take a look at some of the key chapters of biblical prophecy to show us what they actually are saying. And you have to excuse me a little bit, I'm just getting over a bit of a cold, not too serious, but hopefully I don't sound too bad. But uh, I wanted to consider, as I say, some of the key chapters, and uh, of course there's, there's so much to get into, that's such a big topic, but uh, the, the, the chapters that I do want to take a look at in upcoming programs include Daniel chapters 2 and 9, and the Lord's uh, Olivet Discourse, that's mainly in Matthew 24, and the related chapters in Mark and Luke and also, eventually, uh, Revelation 20, which, of course, is the, the great chapter in the Bible on the millennial reign of Christ. So that's uh, my hope for the upcoming programs. But in this program, I want to look at some of the earliest prophecies regarding the history of Israel, because that's going to give us a base for understanding some of the structure, the overall structure of biblical prophecy. And mainly, that's, uh, those prophecies are found in two chapters of the books of Moses, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Leviticus uh, 26 basically concluded uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and Deuteronomy 28 basically concludes um, almost Moses' entire ministry. That's right at the very end, of course, of, of his whole ministry. And we won't, uh, it's, I should say it's 28, and it goes through the Song of Moses uh, in chapter 32. And, of course, he blesses the, the tribes of Israel in chapter 33, and then uh, uh, in chapter 34, uh, he dies on the mountain there. So it's right at the very end of his ministry. But with those two chapters, what we see is the first kind of uh, overall forecast of Israel's entire history. And it's really, really a remarkable view of Israel's history because it was made so early and yet it shows us what are the basic stages that the nation of Israel was going to pass through. So very, very important prophecies and we'll use this uh, as, uh, we'll use this program to look at these chapters so we have a basic basic understanding for uh, the structure of biblical prophecy and the rest of the Bible. And what you see in these chapters and we'll cover a, a couple of other portions, brief portions as well. But what you see in these chapters is that God was showing Israel that this nation was going to go through four basic stages in its history. Uh, Pember calls them the four basic epochs of the history of the nation of Israel. The first one was from the time of their election with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way through their sojourn in Egypt until they were brought out of Egypt, and wandered in the wilderness, and then entered into the good land, finally. Uh, and if you use uh, the Schofield Study Bible, he follows Usher. That's roughly from 19, 
20 B.C. to 1450 B.C., which is about 470 years, uh, give or take. Um, so a long period of time. Uh, and that's the first stage of the history of the nation of Israel that they were going to go through. Uh, the second stage was their time when they were actually in the good land. And that's all the way from the time of Joshua up until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, so roughly 1,500 years, and that, that uh, second stage, that second epoch. And then the third stage is a stage when they have been disowned as God's people. That's, uh, of course, began in AD 70, and it's continued now for almost 2,000 years, and that's the stage of the history of Israel that we're currently in. And then the final epoch will be when God regathers the nation of Israel at the end of this age during the Great Tribulation and brings them to rule with him on the earth. Uh, that, of course, will happen, as I say, during the Great Tribulation. So that, that'll be the final epoch. So you have these four basic epochs in the history of the nation of Israel. And when we see these, that will give us a basic uh, way to understand the rest of biblical prophecy. So uh, very important to have a, something of a view of these chapters of the history of the nation of Israel. You also have a, a, a very concise statement of Israel's history uh, at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll just say a few words about that. But again, it's following that same basic uh, pattern that God was going to, they were going to rebel against God, so God was going to cast them away and eventually bring them back to himself. But when we consider these prophecies today, we may not appreciate them because, of course, we can look back and say, yes, we know all that. Now, this, that's exactly what happened. But we have to remember at the time these prophecies were spoken by God through Moses, uh, Israel had no idea of what its future was going to, to be. They didn't know, but God knew. And so these are just remarkable, remarkable prophecies about the future of very, very long history of the nation of Israel. And we really need to appreciate that. You know, the study of biblical prophecy always helps you to realize just how solid the word of God in the Bible really is. It shows he really is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And it encourages us to believe that just as the prophecies from the past have already been fulfilled, so they will also be fulfilled in the future. We need to have a lot of confidence in that. And that comes from taking some time to look at these marvelous disclosures God has given us of what he is going to do. And I was really impressed with this again as I was preparing for this podcast and looking into some of these prophecies. Another prophecy uh, uh, that's uh, also very pretty early on in the history of Israel, not quite so early as the prophecies of Moses, but it's a prophecy of Ahijah in 1 Kings chapter 14. And this was when the wife of the apostate king Jeroboam came to him because their son was very sick and they wanted to know whether he was going to live or not. And she disguised herself and she came to the prophet Ahijah and asked him. And he told her, basically, your son is going to die as soon as you go back to the city. He's going to die. But then he went on and he made this prophecy. He said, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. And of course, this is a reference. He made these uh, these two idolatrous altars in the land of Israel, which were different from the unique temple in Jerusalem. And he set up these 
uh, priests, anybody who wanted to, could become a priest and uh, offer idol sacrifices. And he had the idols in these uh, places of worship uh, and forced Israel to turn away from the Lord. And so here the prophet uh, announces judgment upon not just the house of Jeroboam, but upon all Israel that had followed him in this apostasy. And he's saying, basically, in some time in the future, Israel is going to be carried away from the good land. And it really struck me uh, to see, uh, you know, that prophecy is, was exactly what was fulfilled. Uh, that a prophecy was made in 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. And uh, I think it's roughly 200 years later uh, was when Israel finally was carried away because of their idolatry. And that's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, and I'll just read those verses, in, some of them. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. So I was just so impressed that even though the prophecy that Ahijah made was very brief and short, because that prophecy was the word of the Lord, it had to be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled two centuries later in a very exact way. He said what uh, Ahijah said to the wife of Jeroboam was, Israel is, is going to be carried away beyond the river. Well, if you look at the places where the king of Assyria carried them to, uh, I didn't read it, the harbor and, and, and all these other places that are mentioned in Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Kings 17, all these places, they are beyond the river, being the, the river being the river Euphrates, beyond Babylon, uh, they were carried away to, in the fulfillment of what the prophet Ahijah had said. And that just really impressed me as I got into that. And I'll link to the note uh, that we sent out. Um, it's called uh, That Which Cannot Be Shaken. Because the Lord's word cannot be shaken. You know, the Lord said, he says in Mark thirteen thirty one, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It is really so. You know, everything in this world we see today, almost everything is going to be wiped away and uh, dissolved. But the Lord's word will never pass away. And as we get into biblical prophecy, as we see how marvelously prophecy has been fulfilled throughout the ages, we will just have to bow before the Lord and worship because we realize it is really so. His word is so solid and immovable and we should always believe it is the word of God. Even in a good way, it makes us fear the Lord and fear his word. Uh, Isaiah 66 verse 2 is a, is a wonderful verse. The Lord says... Um, in verse 1, he says, I, I made the heavens and the earth. What are you going to build for me? And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, But I will look to this one, to him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. We need to be those who really tremble at the Lord's word. Then the Lord will look to us. And unfortunately, today, very, very few have that proper attitude toward the word of God. When the Lord says something, we, we should have this trembling within and realize how serious and how sober a matter this really is. And so that's one of the great, uh, great blessings of looking at biblical prophecy. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can look at biblical prophecy. 
And the first, and what I've been emphasizing up till now, is just to look at it objectively with how it matches up with historical events to see how solid the Bible is, as I say, and also to see what is God's plan, what is God's purpose, what is God working out on this earth today and in the future to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. That's looking at prophecy in a very objective way, and that's a very, very healthy and profitable practice, and we really should do that uh, to have a proper understanding of spiritual things. But you can also look at prophecy from the standpoint of how it applies to us and to our experience. Because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, regarding the history of the nation of Israel, he says, these things happened as examples of us. So we surely can apply it to our experience. And I want to take some time now to do that with these prophecies. Um, and, uh, and just to consider, and in part this is because I've been so convicted uh, as I've gotten into uh, these chapters uh, about one matter in particular, which is in both in Leviticus 26 and in uh, Deuteronomy 28, the key issue is whether or not Israel was going to obey the Lord. That's the key issue. All the blessings that God wanted to give to the nation of Israel depended upon their obedience. If they would obey the Lord, if they would submit themselves to his command, they would be so blessed in every way. That's, that's what uh, uh, the, the, both of the, the way both of those chapters begin is with all the blessings God wants to give them. But if they disobeyed, if they turned away from the Lord, eventually they would bring on so many curses and so much punishment upon themselves uh, in, in just terrible ways as the Lord's discipline to them to help them realize that they had turned away from the Lord and they had forsaken him and that there is a real consequence for disobedience. And, of course, that's what eventually happened. They did turn away from the Lord. They suffered so terribly for that disobedience and eventually, to the point, the Lord completely cast the nation of Israel out of his sight after they rejected the Lord Jesus as the Messiah and crucified him. Uh, the Lord sent the Roman general Titus and he destroyed the, Jerusalem and basically the nation of Israel uh, and ended their dwelling in, in the good land in AD 70. So it's a very, very serious and sober matter. But it's caused me to have a lot of reflection and consideration about any disobedience in my life, um, any rebellion in my life. Is there anything in my life that's not fully submitted to the Lord and to his word? Now, of course, the way we obey the Lord today is somewhat different from the way the Israelites did. You know, that was a more outward kind of obedience. But it still, it seems when you read the Old Testament, it really did depend upon their heart. Did they have a heart to obey the Lord or not? It wasn't just a matter of did they keep his commandments, but what was their heart toward the Lord? Did they really love the Lord? Then they had a way to obey him like uh, David did throughout most of his life. Of course, he, even he fell seriously a couple of times. But um, but it, it's still, even though we talk about how the Old Covenant was a matter of kind of outward obedience. It does seem to have that heart of obedience is what would enable the Israelites to keep uh, the Lord's commands. And that same principle, of course, applies to us today. What is our heart toward the Lord? Uh, do we really love him? Then we'll keep his commands. That's what the Lord says uh, in uh, John 14, verses 21 and 23. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, we often think, well, commands, those are, that's Old Testament. We, that's a, a outward and it's legal. 
Uh, that's not something we need to keep in the New Testament. But here, Jesus makes it very clear. He does want us to keep his commands. There is a kind of keeping of commands in the New Testament that really matters to the Lord. Now, it's the type of command that is different. The command of the Old Testament was the command of the Old Testament law. That's not what the Lord is speaking of here. What the Lord is speaking of here with his commands, plural, means he touches us sometimes in regards to certain things. These are the commands that come to us personally from time to time in our lives. And if we keep these commands, you know, if we really submit ourselves to the Lord in these commands, it says that means we really love the Lord. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So it's not so much, you know, the the outward uh, Ten Commandments type of commands that the Lord is talking about here. It's, you know, if the Lord just touches you, you need to be in the Word more, right? You need to spend more time with me in prayer. That's a, that's a command from the Lord, so to speak. Well, as you develop that relationship with the Lord, you're going to enter into a deeper love relationship with the Lord because you're keeping His commands, But it's not only that. I mean, sometimes we feel the only way to touch the eternal life is by spending time with the Lord in these ways, in prayer and in the Word. But sometimes the Lord will give us uh, some commitment. And that's a real blessing when the Lord gives you some commitment for you to fulfill. Then when you carry out that commitment, maybe some service in the church, maybe a very practical matter, uh, you know, maybe setting up chairs for the meeting on the Lord's Day morning. Maybe that's a commitment the Lord, you just have a sense from the Lord, I need to... Uh, set up the chairs and make sure the, this, the, the meeting hall is prepared so when the saints come, there'll be a good and healthy environment for everyone to worship the Lord together. Well, that's a command from the Lord. That's the kind of command the Lord is speaking of here. And as you fulfill that command, the Lord's going to say, ah, here's one who really loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You're going to enter into a deeper relationship with the Lord because you are keeping his commands. It's not the command in the sense, uh, you know, honor your father and mother. Well, you should. There's, the moral commands are still in effect, very much so. Uh, but that's not, well, not what the Lord is speaking of here. It's these personal commands that come to us uh, all throughout our Christian life. And it's a real blessing to receive these commands. And if we have never have received this type of command, it indicates our relationship with the Lord is not very uh, active. There's not much going on there between us and the Lord because as we enter into uh, something of a relationship with him, we will sense the Lord touching us. You know, at the very beginning of the church age, uh, right there in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just start with first verse, uh, Acts chapter 1, 1 and 2. The former account I have made, O Theophilus, concerning all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day on which he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he chose. So he had given certain commands to the apostles at that time for them to keep. Why could he do that? Because they had been spending time with him over the last three and a half years and had gone through all those experiences with him so they were able to receive his commands and that was the beginning of the Lord's move in the book of Acts. Well, if we spend time with the Lord, if we give him a way to deal with us, eventually we're going to sense some command from the Lord that comes to us. 
We need to be faithful to that command because that means we really love the Lord. It's not Loving the Lord is not a matter of just saying, I love the Lord. Are you keeping his commands? Can the Lord come to you and bring you into an obedience, a lifelong obedience so he can speak to you day by day and lead you and guide you in his way with his commands, with his particular commitment? And what, you know, those, what those commands are to me will be very different from what they are to you or any other believer. But you're giving the Lord to deal with you in a unique way and bring you into a much deeper relationship with himself. You know, after saying that in verse uh, John fourteen twenty one, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He goes on in verse 23 and says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So now it's not just a commandment anymore. It's the Lord's word that comes to us. It is a command, but it comes to us as his word in particular situations, in a particular way. And we just have a a sense we need to keep that word. And as we do keep his word, the father will love us and the father and the son will come to us and make their home within us. We enter into a much deeper realization and much deeper experience of loving the Lord and obeying the Lord by keeping his commands. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I know that the father's command is eternal life. So very often the, the eternal life doesn't come to us just when we're having a time of fellowship with the Lord, when we're in the word or in prayer or in messages and meetings with the saints. It comes to us as we keep the Lord's commands in this day-by-day kind of way. And of course, negatively, if we uh, refuse those commands, if the Lord gives us a commitment and we just have this unwillingness within us to uh, submit ourselves and to receive that command, to receive that word, we'll find that our spiritual life is drying up. It doesn't mean you can still come to the word. You can still seek the Lord in prayer, but it will not be as rich. It won't be as uh, beneficial because the Lord knows there's a, there's a barrier now between you and him because you, you have refused something of his commitment to you. It's an honor and a blessing and a privilege to receive any commitment from the Lord. And we need to be fearful and be exercised before the Lord that we would receive his command, his word, so he can bring us into a deeper relationship with, him, with himself. And as, as we'll see as we get into these chapters, and mainly the chapter I want to get into, I should say, is Leviticus 26. Um, and we'll, we'll uh, expand on that with some of the other chapters as well. But uh, as we get into this, we can, we'll just see how crucial this whole matter of obedience really was. Everything depended upon uh, whether or not Israel would obey the Lord's commands uh, in terms of his carrying out what he wanted to do through the nation of Israel. And I want to add a word Uh, about uh, our basis for obeying the Lord today and receiving his commands. And that is we have to be clear about the economy of God's salvation. If if we think we're just going to go, okay, the Lord gives me a word, I'm going to go do that, uh, eventually we'll be very, very frustrated in our Christian life. Because the Christian life, you can say in a nutshell, is not so much a matter of doing as it is of dying. Yes, as I just said, we need to keep the Lord's commands. But we can only do that as we pass through the process of death and resurrection that the Lord himself went through. That is the economy of God's salvation, the process of death and resurrection. So our real submission to the Lord is to enter into 
the reality of our baptism with Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. Uh, as you know, that's Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 4. And this, you know, was very much uh, something I appreciated as a new believer in Christ. Such a key, key verses. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What then shall we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. We who have died to sin, how shall we still live in it? Or are you ignorant that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So that's the first aspect of our obedience to Christ as believers in Christ, is that we acknowledge, I have been baptized into the death of Christ. I'm, and Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. If we don't have that basic fundamental realization, we can never in, enter into a life of obedience to Christ. That will just never be our experience. It will never be something real to us. We'll be in the realm of trying to do something to please Christ. But we've rejected the basic principle of salvation in the New Testament, that it is a, ma- it is a matter of death and resurrection. Right? Again, verse 3 to read. We've been baptized into his death. We have to have a very sober realization of that fact and ask the Lord to help us appreciate in a much deeper way this fact that we have been baptized into the death of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 4 goes on. We have been buried, therefore, with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5 also, for if we have grown together with him in the likeness of his death, indeed we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So that is the basic principle of obedience to the Lord in the New Testament, that we enter into this process of death and resurrection. And any time we're trying to live the Christian life by our own strength, by our natural life, we're going to have a sense of dissatisfaction and a deep sense within that something's not right in our relationship with the Lord. Because this is the way he's ordained for us to take in following him. And yet we've rejected that way. We're saying, no, I'm going to try to please God basically by keeping the law. And of course, that's never something God's going to accept. He's going to allow us to fail time after time after time. Uh, and until we finally realize that and give up, and that's not an easy process to go through, uh, to to really come to an end of yourself so that the Lord can really do in you what he wants to do. But that's the real obedience, is to surrender to, a, to the Lord our doing, our trying, to enter into the death of Christ, and so that he can live his life through us in resurrection. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. That's the real obedience, the basic Uh, The basis for all our obedience in the New Testament is to pass through the death and resurrection of Christ with Christ so we can walk with him in newness of life, praise the Lord. And and as I say, getting into these chapters and seeing how serious a matter disobedience really is uh, made a deep impression on me these past couple of weeks. And uh, I hope you'll find that helpful too. And and that's what we'll be getting into in the next uh, segment of the program. Uh, So we will talk with you again on the other side of the break. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord. 
and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So now let's look at these early prophecies concerning the history of the nation of Israel. I've already mentioned the prophecy of Ahijah in 1 Kings 14. That prophecy has already been completely fulfilled. It was uh, fulfilled when Assyria came and carried away the northern tribes captive in about 740 BC past the river Euphrates, and which is apparently where they've been ever since, although no one today is really quite sure what their identity is. But that prophecy, as I say, that's already been completely fulfilled. The other prophecies that I want to look at have not yet been completely fulfilled because they show the entire history of the nation of Israel, how Israel was going to rebel and eventually the Lord was going to bring them back. Uh, So the first of these uh, that I want to look at, because it's uh, more concise, is the prophecy that Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just as the nation of Israel was on the verge of entering into the good land, and it seemed like it was a real high point for the nation of Israel. But Moses gives them a very sober word. And uh, I'll just just read that. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. And I encourage you, if you can, open up your Bible and uh, read along as as we're going through these prophecies. I think you might find that helpful. But I'll I'll just read these verses here. Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. And I'm using here the New King James Version. Now, the interesting thing about this prophecy from the mouth of Moses is that he's not offering them the choice here of obedience or disobedience. He's simply telling them exactly what's going to happen. In the other chapters we're going to look at, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the choice is between if you if you obey the Lord, you're going to be blessed. If you don't obey, you're going to be cursed. But here he's just saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to fall into idolatry. And you're going to be carried away and scattered among the nations. Now, it's significant that it says scattered among the nations. Because that's not a reference to uh, the Babylonian ca- or captivity or the Assyrian captivity before that. Uh, because at that time, the Israelites were not scattered. They still were somewhat cohesive. Uh, even in their exile, they hadn't yet been scattered. That didn't happen until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So when it says, that I'm going to scatter you among the nations, 
when Moses says God, that's what God's going to do, that's talking about the final destruction of the nation of Israel that took place in AD 70. So this is a prophecy that encompasses the entire history of the nation of Israel. Because when it says after that, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and soul. And then he says, I'm going to remember the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. God is going to remember the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. He's saying that's what's going to happen at the end of this age. At the end of this age, God is going to bring you back because you're going to have a repentant heart. Finally, after so many generations of suffering, you're going to have a repentant heart and then God will remember the covenant that he swore to your fathers. And of course, we know from the rest of the prophecies about the end times, that means he's going to regather them back to the nation of Israel. So in this concise word here, we have a, a full prophecy regarding the future history of the nation of Israel. And again, I want to stress as we're getting into this, we shouldn't take this for granted. Today we look back on it and we say, oh yeah, that's what happened. This is looking forward. The children of Israel had no idea what their history was going to be. These are remarkable, remarkable prophecies that are exactly fulfilled in the history of the nation of Israel. And it should give us a strong confidence that the Bible does know the end from the beginning. Because the one who wrote the Bible, God himself, surely does know the end from the beginning. And again, that's one of the main reasons to study biblical prophecy. It, it gives us such a strong assurance and faith in the word of God and in God himself. You know, if you ever run into an atheist or anyone who doubts that the Bible is the word of God, just ask them one question. What's Israel doing back in the good land? That's just a remarkable, remarkable work of God that's fully predicted in the Bible. That's what this is saying. God is going to bring them back. He, this is written about 1400 or 1500 B.C., 3,500 years ago. And that prophecy has started to be fulfilled in these days, before our very eyes. So don't tell me the Bible is not the word of God. Only God could have predicted that. Every other time in the history of mankind, when a nation has lost its homeland and been defeated and scattered, that nation has disappeared from history. No exception. No exception. Except for the nation of Israel. The one nation where the Bible says, you are going to be brought back to the good land. In the latter days, you're going to be brought back to the good land. Again, just a remarkable, remarkable proof of the divine authorship of the Bible. And we should never take that for granted. And it's a strong evidence. Again, I would say to use that with your atheist friends. Ask them, what is Israel doing back in the good land? Why is it that Jesus said this had to happen? The prophets in the Old Testament said it had to happen. And here today, it has happened. Of course, it hasn't yet been fully fulfilled. Uh, it won't be until the Lord's return when he will fully gather Israel back from the nations. But at least today we are seeing the preparation for the fulfillment of that by the, with the fact that the, the Jews are back in the good land of Israel today. And just again, that should really be a strong encouragement to our faith. Praise the Lord. Okay, so now let's look at a more detailed forecast of the history of the nation of Israel and as usual, when I'm studying prophecy, I get a great deal of help from the writings of G.H. Pember. This was from the second volume of his Great Prophecies series. He gets into these histories. And he calls Leviticus 26 the first forecast of the history of the nation of Israel. 
because this is the first the first time where you see a full outline of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. So again, I'm just going to go through this. Uh, this is longer, um, so we won't dwell on any particular point too much, but uh, we will try to get through the, the whole chapter. So it begins with, uh, just um, in verses 1 and 2, kind of a review of the key points about the law. Uh, to abstain from idols, uh, because the Lord is God, you want to keep his Sabbaths and reverence his sanctuary. I am the Lord. That's uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. Those are the key points. Here it's reminding them about how we should observe the law. I want, I want to say here too, this chapter, this prophecy, is really the final chapter in the giving of the law. Because in at the very last verse of the chapter, Leviticus 26, 46, it says, These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now, there's one more chapter in the uh, book of Leviticus about making a vow, but that's mostly an addendum to what's been covered already in Leviticus. It's this prophecy, which is the final final chapter of the giving of, of the law at Mount Sinai. So we should keep that in mind as we're going through this. So it begins with this rehearsal of how to keep the law and how to honor the law. And there's three basic points. Uh, don't make idols. You honor, you keep the Sabbaths and you honor the Lord's sanctuary. And then the first section, verses uh, 3 to 13, are the blessings on obedience. And as I'm reading these, uh, you can see... Uh, Again, how this, we could apply this in a spiritual sense to our own experience. Um, the first blessing, there's seven of these blessings. There'll be rain in due season and produce. Because you have to have rain at the right time in order to have a, a good harvest. If it comes in the wrong time, that's a disaster. He's saying the first blessing is you're going to get the rain at the right time and you're going to have produce, uh, plenty of produce. The second blessing is there's going to be peace. And for sure, in our Christian life and in our church life, we all desire to have peace. That's a real blessing from the Lord. But if we're disobedient, we're not going to really experience much peace. That, then that peace will be taken away. Uh, the third thing, there's not going to be the evil beasts roaming through the land. Four, victory over the enemies. That's a wonderful blessing, right? To have victory over your enemies. Verse 6 says, The sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Because you obey the Lord. You trust in the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And with all these blessings, there's going to be an abundance of food. Number five. Number six. Now we come to God's personal blessing upon the nation of Israel. He said, God's tabernacle will be among them. And ultimately, he himself will walk among them and they shall be his people. So you can apply this in a spiritual sense to our own experience, but this is saying historically, these were the blessings that were promised upon the nation of Israel if they would only obey the Lord their God. Again, you see how crucial obedience is in our Christian life and in our church life, how serious a matter it is to disobey the Lord. And we should be very, very fearful never to have a kind of a spirit of disobedience among us towards the Lord, a very, very serious matter. So that's up to verse 13. Uh, but then in verse 14, he goes on and he talks about the chastisements that were going to fall upon them if they disobeyed his word. And it was up to them. They could obey or they could disobey. 
But we see in, the, in this chapter of Leviticus 26 just how serious a matter the disobedience was. And as we go through this, uh, I'll mention some of the points, but I, I think you'll also be able to pick out many things that were really fulfilled in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, as I say, I was helped uh, very much by getting into Pember's writings on this. His feeling is that these there's five of these uh, woes unto Israel in this chapter. He feels they were, these were fulfilled successively in the history of the nation of Israel. And you can certainly see at least some of that. Some of it might not be so clear, but at least some of that you can see uh, when you trace this out, how there is a progression in these woes. Uh, and it just shows how much they suffered because of their disobedience. It didn't have to be that way, but they did disobey the Lord. They turned away from him and they suffered just horribly for that. So to begin with, in verses 14 and 15, you have... Uh, basically a general warning against disobedience. If you don't obey me, uh, if you despise my statutes, I will also do this to you, in verse 16. And then you, so you, then you have the first of these several levels of chastisement. And the first one has to do with disease and uh, losing your produce and being defeated by your enemies, in verses uh, 16 and 17. I will appoint waste, uh, terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Well, this was pretty obviously fulfilled not long after, during the time of the Judges. Uh, in, uh, when you look at Judges chapter 2, right away, very early on, uh, it tells us, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." That's the result of, of disobedience, is being defeated by the enemies. And that's true in the Old Testament, true in our experience today. Uh, if, uh, you know, Satan laughs at us when we're trying to serve the Lord, but there's a spirit of disobedience within us toward the Lord, we're not going to have any impact for Christ if that's the case. We really are, the first one we need to be defeated by is the Lord himself. Then our service can have some real impact. Uh, so they were defeated by their enemies in uh a little while later, of course, you come to um, Judges chapter 6, and it talks about how, uh, again, the, the children of Israel did evil in sight of the Lord, so he delivered them into the hand of Midian. Uh, so it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, and, and also Amalekites. They would encamp and destroy uh, the, uh, the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. So that's a very clear fulfillment of this prophecy in Leviticus 26. Because of their disobedience, God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies and to have a lack of produce. Very, very serious word. In verses 18 through 20 of Leviticus 26, you have the second level of chastisement, which is a drought that results in famine. Uh, if you don't obey me, I'll punish you seven times more. I'll break the pride of your power. The heavens are going to be like iron. Your strength will be spent in vain. Your land shall not yield its produce. And of course you read about uh, famine in the time of Elijah. He says it's not going to rain for three years. There's a tremendous famine. Uh, and at the time of Elisha, 
Uh, he told the widow, look, there's going to be a famine here for seven years. You better go away. So these were things that Israel experienced because of their disobedience. God does not speak his words in vain. He doesn't warn us in vain. If he gives us a warning, we need to be very, very sober before the Lord about that. Very, very serious matter. Uh, verses 21 and 22, you have the third level of chastisement. He says, uh, the Lord says, verse 22, I will send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children and livestock and make your highways desolate. While you read uh, all through the books of Samuel and uh, Kings of these lions that were wreaking havoc in some places in uh, the land of Israel. David had to protect his flock against them. Uh, Samson had to kill a lion in the snowy pit. Uh, or no, no, it was Benaniah who killed the lion in the snowy pit. Uh, the unfaithful prophet uh, who prophesied against uh, Jeroboam's altar was killed by a lion. And uh, Samson uh, killed a, a lion with his bare hands, of course. But they had to deal with these creatures, these wild beasts, which were in the land of Israel because of their disobedience. That's the third level of chastisement. The fourth level, bringing a sword against them. This is verses 23 through 26. Bringing a sword against them, sending pestilence upon them in their cities, delivering them into the hand of their enemies, and cutting off the supply of bread. And, of course, that was filled, fulfilled uh, in at least one time when Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, came and besieged Samaria. And there, it even talks about, uh, in, the, that in the next level of chastisement, how the, the women would eat their own children. It was that severe. The famine was. Again, this was brought upon Israel, and God warned them here in Leviticus 26, these things were going to happen. And, yes, sure enough, they were fulfilled in the Old Testament. Then 27 through 33, uh, you have the fifth level, the final level. And this is where you have the ultimate scattering of the nation of Israel. And I'll, I'll read this. After all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and chastise you. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Now, you, you saw that terrible, terrible uh, sin and uh, suffering at the time of Ben-Hadad's siege of Samaria. But the siege of Jerusalem uh, in A.D. 70 was also very, very terrible. Uh, and I don't know if there's any records about specifically about that terrible thing taking place, but very possibly, because according to this prophecy, that was going to take place during this final siege. This is talking here about the final dispersion of the nation of Israel, not what happened uh, to the northern tribes or in, to, uh, in the Babylonian captivity. Um, because he goes on to say, I will destroy your high places, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. Right? That's a reference to the destruction of the temple. Uh, I will not smell your, the fragrance of your aromas. I will bring the land to desolation. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. So again, here you see the scattering among the nations. So that's not talking about the early captivity, this is talking about the captivity of A.D. 70, when God finally gave up the nation of Israel. And even he says, then I will draw out a sword after you. So even though they're scattered, the sword is still going after them. Uh, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Uh, verse 36, and as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness of heart in the lands of your enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. 
You know, ever since then, ever since AD 70 when the Jews were scattered, they've never had peace or rest in any land where they've gone. Really so, just a fulfillment of this prophecy. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. Those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity, in their enemies' lands, and also in their fathers' iniquities which are with them, they shall waste away. All this history of the nation of Israel, since this was uh, spoken about 3,500 years ago, this has been fulfilled in the history of the nation of Israel. And we need to keep that in mind when we read the Old Testament, when we read of these things coming upon them. This is exactly what God said would happen to them. And it should put a real fear of the Lord in us. He does not speak his words in vain. A very, very sober matter uh, to have the word of the Lord. Uh, How we deal with that word. Do we receive it? Do we allow his word to work in us? Or are we going to disobey the Lord and his word and live in our own stubborn will? There will be very, very serious consequences for us, just as there have been for the nation of Israel. But the Lord is a merciful God. And so he goes on here at the end of Leviticus 26 to say, beginning in verse 40, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. Basically, if they humble themselves, then I'll remember my covenant, which he swore to his fathers, to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is saying here, at the end of time, when the Israelites finally repent, when they acknowledge the fact that they've sinned against me and what they've suffered has been the result of my chastisement of them, when they recognize that, then I'm going to remember the covenant and I'm going to restore them. So this part of the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. This will be fulfilled when Israel has a national repentance at the end of this age, when they see the Lord and they recognize that he is their Savior. That's when this part of the prophecy will be fulfilled. So again, just a remarkable remarkable prophecy about the, the history of the nation of Israel, some of which has already been fulfilled, some of which yet remains to be fulfilled, but will be fulfilled. Because when we see how much of it has been fulfilled specifically in the history of the nation of Israel, that should give us a strong assurance that what remains to be fulfilled one day will be fulfilled. Praise the Lord for that. So now let's take a look at Deuteronomy 28 and some of the following chapters. Deuteronomy 28, you have another forecast of Israel's history. Pember calls this a second forecast. Uh, In Deuteronomy 30, you have God's work to restore the children of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 32, that's where you have the Song of Moses, which again repeats uh, much of this same theme about the history of Israel. In the first part of Deuteronomy, again, you have these these blessings, uh, which are just wonderful, which God wants to bestow upon them for their obedience and submission to his word. But those don't seem to take a lot of time because most of this chapter has to do with God's punishment on the disobedience of the nation of Israel. Uh, Very, very sober word. Uh, Just how serious, again, how serious a matter disobedience to the Lord really is. And we should have a lot of sober consideration about that ourselves. Uh, And I'm not going to go through uh, too much of this verse by verse. But uh, the first part of the chapter has to do with Uh, chastisements while they're in the land and and kind of similar in a number of ways to what's recorded in Leviticus 26. 
But in verse 36, it says, The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and you shall become a pro- an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. Now, this is not talking about Israel being scattered. It's saying he was going to take them and their king to a nation they didn't know. So this was uh, very specific, very specifically fulfilled when the ten tribes were carried away to Assyria with their king and when Judah and Benjamin were carried away to Babylon with their king. So this is talking about the early captivity of Israel, not the latter captivity that we're in today. This is uh, uh, the first captivity, and it's very significant. Now, after that, uh, going on with verse 38, it's dealing with them again as though they are back in the land, even though it doesn't talk about God's restoring. It doesn't really talk about God bringing them back from Babylon. It seems like God doesn't really count that here as a return. It was only a partial return. And yet it does speak of, after this, as the Israelites being back in the land in these next section of verses, uh, verse 38 uh, up to verse 46. Again, suffering. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours. They shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. So these are all the continuing sufferings, continued sufferings in their land because of their disobedience. But then in verse 47, it talks about the begins to talk about the final captivity. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. And it goes on, they shall besiege you in your gates until your high and fortified walls, which you trust, come down. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and daughters. What a terrible, terrible judgment uh, upon this nation. And it goes on in verse 64, finally. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and an anguish of soul. And this is the terrible, terrible judgment that's been fulfilled on the nation of Israel ever since A.D. 70. And this is the situation of the nation of Israel today, of the the people of Israel. And the Jews, of course, the ten tribes, we don't quite know where they are. Uh, There's some theories about that, but... So mainly we would say this was referring to the Jews who have been scattered all over the earth. And yet somehow, even in his judgment, God has continued to make sure they remain as a distinct nation so that he can fulfill his purpose through them. Praise the Lord for that. And that's the way Deuteronomy 28 basically ends. It's very, very uh, hopeless uh, at that point. But when you come to uh, Deuteronomy 30, That's where it says, It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. Uh, You return to the Lord your God. The Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's the fourth epoch. That's the fourth epoch that has yet to be fulfilled, that will be fulfilled at the end of this age when God will turn and again bless the nation of Israel. Now, I won't say much about Deuteronomy 32. Again, it... uh, covers very much of the same theme that when Israel entered into the good land they would forget God and therefore he would chastise them. 
So you can read that for yourself. I encourage you to do that. But uh, I do want to bring out one point, which is very, very crucial. And that is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. Listen to what this says. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. So this gives us a great principle. When is God going to finally deliver Israel? It says, when he sees that their power is gone. That seems to be the basic principle according to which God is dealing with the nation of Israel. He wants them to realize eventually their only hope is in God himself. You know, the psalmist in Psalm uh, 62, 11, uh, the psalmist says, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, the power belongs to God. This is such an important principle that God wants to teach the nation nation of Israel. And he wants to teach it to us too. That's when God delivers us. Again, I say you can apply these prophecies very much to our spiritual experience. God helps us when he sees that our power is gone. That's when he comes in sometimes, when a situation seems hopeless, when there is no deliverance except what we find in the Lord. Then we experience resurrection power coming in to rise up and to deal with this situation or that situation. As long as we have strength in ourselves, it seems like the Lord will stand back and let us fail. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Right? When I'm weak, then I'm powerful. That's how we can apply this in our spiritual experience. But we see it also in the history and the experience of the nation of Israel. That's what God is doing. He's breaking their power so they really turn and cry out to him. And another uh, key statement about this is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, verse 6, rather, and 7. Uh, this is at the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, after his final vision, and he sees this man, and one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, the, the three and a half years of the great tribulation. It shall be for time, times, and half a time, And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So that's exactly what you see in Deuteronomy 32, 36. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. That's the basic principle according to which God is dealing with the nation of Israel today. And of course you see this in other portions of the Old Testament as well. One famous one is in Zechariah 14. Verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, when spoil will divide it in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south, and you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee and as you fled from the earthquake in the days of the Zion king of Judah. So in other words, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by these innumerable armies right at the end of this age, and it will just seem hopeless. The, the city is going to be taken, 
most of it's going to be taken at least. The, the city won't be cut off. People won't be cut off from the city. But the, for the most part, the city will be taken. Then the Lord will go forth and fight at that time because the power of the holy people will be shattered. And he's going to say, now that's the right time because now they're really going to recognize me as their Lord and as their Savior. So now I can come in to help them. Praise the Lord for that. And that was prophesied all the way back uh, at the time of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, a key principle regarding how the Lord is dealing with the nation of Israel. Amen for that. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. I hope you've found it helpful. And in particular, I hope it helps you to appreciate more just how solid and how real the Word of God is. Uh, If that's uh, been the case, then I think uh, this has been, uh, been more than worthwhile. And I hope you found it so. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.